You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he is also the Founder and Executive Director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies and is on the core faculty at Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. In the early lines of Virgil's Aeneid, he records these words, Against the Tiber's mouth, but far away, an ancient town was seated on the sea, a Tyrian colony, the people made stout for the war and studious of their trade, Carthage, the name, beloved by Juno more than her own Argos, or the Samian shore. Here stood her chariot, here, if heaven were kind, the seat of awful empire she designed. Yet she had heard an ancient rumor fly, long sighted by the people of the sky, that times to come should see the Trojan race, her Carthage ruin, and her towers deface. And Dr. Haken, we're beginning uh, this week another two-part installment, this time on Cyprian of Carthage. Uh, And one of the things that has been a theme uh, as we engage in early church history is setting up the the larger context for these figures and for the world they're engaging with. And so I was wondering if you could just speak to uh, the significance of Carthage in the Roman world. Uh, People may be familiar with some of the other cities in the early Christian world, like Alexandria, obviously Rome, Jerusalem, Antioch. But what is so special about Carthage? Well, Carthage really is the other great city in the West. Um, the cities that you, all, you, you just mentioned all are in the East. And there are obviously a number of uh, remarkable cities in terms of classical civilization in the Eastern Mediterranean. In the West, uh, Rome is really the undisputed mistress of the kind of Western Mediterranean world, apart from Carthage. And Carthage had been the um, um, the traditional enemy of Rome. Uh, As Rome uh, advanced into controlling the Italian peninsula in the uh, 200s BC, um, it was inevitable that she would clash with uh, the Carthaginian Empire. Carthage founded, and you alluded to it there, um, as a uh, in the lines of um, uh, Virgil, um, Carthage had been founded as a colony of the uh, Phoenicians, uh, Tyre, and um, became uh, very quickly um, a city of some thirty to fifty thousand uh, inhabitants by the, you know, probably by the fourth or fifth century uh, BC. Um, In the 200s BC, Rome finds herself um, in conflict with Carthage. Uh, Carthaginians had settled in Sicily, um, in uh, the southern part of what we would now describe as the French Riviera, the Mediterranean shores of Hispania or Spain, and then obviously North Africa. And um, the... The Romans uh, end up engaging in three long wars with the Carthaginians. The second of those wars is the one in which the Carthaginian general Hannibal um, brings a remarkable army over the Alps with uh, with elephants. And um, for about a decade, 
rampages up and down the Italian peninsula, defeating legion after legion. But he doesn't have siege equipment, so he can't besiege the city of Rome and eventually has to go back to North Africa, where he will be defeated in the uh, 202 BC at the Battle of Zama uh, by the Romans. Um, throughout the third uh, the second century BC, the 100s, uh, there were calls uh, for the destruction of Carthage. Um, Hannibal would leave a deep-seated, lingering fear uh, among the Romans about the Carthaginians. Uh, Carthage was, uh, the Carthaginians spoke a Semitic language, um, Punic. Um, its roots were therefore similar to those of, of other Semitic languages like uh, Hebrew, like uh, Arabic. And the Romans found them, the Carthaginians, um, difficult to understand. And uh, how history would have been different if Carthage had won that war. Um, or being able to maintain her own and preserve her independence, but it was not to be. In the 140s uh, BC, uh, Rome leveled the city, um, sowed it with salt, and uh, basically uh, did not leave one stone um, standing on another. Um, there is an attempt over the next 100 years to rebuild the city, but it was not until Julius Caesar in the 40s BC that the city is replanted as a Roman, a Roman colony and very, very quickly grew uh, to be, again, once, uh, once again, a large, um, influential urban settlement, but this time thoroughly Romanized. Uh, obviously, there would be descendants of Carthaginians um, within the, the city, but it is a, it, it is, we, we describe it as Roman Carthage. And probably the population would have been upwards of uh, somewhere between half a million to 750,000. So it's a very, very large city. And it's in here, it's in Carthage that you have uh, the early or early Christians established in Latin-speaking North Africa. Um, the Carthaginian church will not remember um, who, who brought the gospel to Carthage, but it was probably Jewish believers, probably Jewish Christians. And uh, it's here that the scriptures will be first translated into Latin. Um, it's the Latin textual tradition we call the Afra as opposed to the Itala of the old Latin uh, Bible, the Itala being uh, the Italian uh, tradition of texts. And the Afra is a more faithful tradition, probably because the believers who translated the Bible, uh, and I'm thinking here particularly the Old Testament, were familiar with Hebrew. Um, and uh, we know this from a number of, uh, for a number of reasons. And um, so Carthage then becomes a, a, a very, very important center. And because of its size, uh, the, the, it would have a sig significant Christian population. And um, so by the time that you get to probably the, around the time of Cyprian, um, councils that would be called to meet in Carthage, uh, you, you're looking at maybe 60 to 70 bishops uh, would come to these councils. And uh, the Bishop of Carthage had significant oversight um, of the house churches in Carthage and um, ranking um, among the bishops in the West. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think it was to, was Tertullian uh, associated with Carthage? Is he one of the... Yeah, oh, yeah, yep, yeah, Tertullian's associated with Carthage. And uh, 
So Tertullian is really the first Christian writer to write in Latin. Um, the earliest texts we have in Christian Latin are Tertullian. Uh, there is an earlier text, the Skilliston Martyrs, um, the record of the execution of a um, upwards of a dozen believers from a town called Skillium, which we don't exactly know the locale. It's not far from, probably not far from Carthage, but the trial takes place in Carthage. And then we have Tertullian. Uh, Tertullian's writing in Christian Latin. Um, and there is such a thing as Christian Latin, just as is Christian Greek. I mean, like uh, Christianity in in English, um, you you develop um, you develop a kind of Christianese. You know, for instance, in English, we talk about somebody filling the pulpit, which like if you're not a Christian and you're outside of the world, like what enough does that mean? Does that mean his his girth? Uh, occupies the entirety of the space in the pulpit. Uh, well, no, yeah. so we we develop a, a Christianese, and likewise there is a there are terms in in Latin that come to be used, loan words as well as newly invented words that a non-Latin speaker, a non uh, a Latin speaker who's not a Christian would would simply have no idea what was being said. Um, but Tertullian is the first, and um, the church in Rome, for instance, is still using Greek well into the third century. And probably the first major writer in Latin in Rome is Novatian, who is in the 250s. Um, he's around the time of Cyprian. And we'll come into the story of Cyprian. Um, Hippolytus of Rome, for instance, is still writing in Greek in the early 200s. And so Tertullian then, has, in terms of the linguistic development of Christian Latin, has great significance as well as being significant in other in other ways as well. Yeah, so this this is the world that Cyprian ministers in. Um, but Brent Allen, in his in his introduction to uh, Cyprian's uh, work on the on the church in the popular patristic series, he comments how there really isn't that much known about Cyprian's early life. Um, what do we know? About Cyprian, was he a homegrown? Was he a homegrown Carthaginian? Um, what was his family like? Uh, what was his background? Was he raised as a Christian? Yeah. It, well, no, he was not raised as a Christian. It would appear that um, Brent Allen, who is a, a, an expert on uh, Cyprian's life and theology, um, yeah, there's no doubt that he's correct. Um, the knowledge of Cyprian's life prior to his conversion in the 240s is negligible. Um, it's a real shame. The man who writes the life of Cyprian after his death by martyrdom in 258, uh, who's a man they call Pontius or Pontius, uh, the same as Pontius Pilate, um, obviously not the same person. But Pontius was a, a deacon in the church. He knew Cyprian and he probably could have given us uh, even a few paragraphs of detail about Cyprian's uh, pre-conversion life. Um, but he doesn't, and he gives us his reason that uh, the value, the spiritual value of a person's life, he argues, prior to their becoming a Christian, is of no value at all, and therefore will will begin when Cyprian embraces Christ. Well, yeah, that may be that may be true in terms of spirituality, but it's f deeply frustrating for a historian in trying to understand the background of this man. And so, one of the things that I've being able to think through is that in, in one of his letters, it's the letters of Donatus, which reads more as a theological tract 
than a letter, but it is a letter. It's crafted as a letter. Um, in the initial chapters, uh, particularly chapter two and three, um, but especially chapter three, um, Donatus, or rather, um, Cyprian gives Donatus a kind of uh, bird's eye view of his life prior to Christ. And um, he describes how when he first encountered the gospel, um, he despaired of the possibility of, of changing. And he talks about his life. It's, it's, it's clearly autobiographical. And so we do get the picture of a man who was raised in significant wealth. Um, he's definitely in the aristocratic class, uh, probably provincial aristocracy, probably not uh, one of the, the six to 700 families that ran the Roman world centered in Rome. But he's definitely provincial aristocracy, um, very well off, um, had served as a magistrate at some point, um, had, was a patron of numerous clients, um, so used to, to um, being admired in public, um, public acclaim, um, those sorts of things. And then he talks about, you know, the typical sins of the upper class, um, the, 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 the drinking, uh, the lust, uh, etc. Um, so we do, we do have, we do have a glimpse of him, uh, moving in fairly elevated social circles, uh, among the elite in Carthage, um, very gifted in terms of his, of his ability to speak in public. So he's, he's a rhetorician. Um, he's definitely been trained in the art of rhetoric. Um, as a magistrate, um, uh, he's a leader. Um, all of this is true. And so he's a man uh, who probably is in his 40s when he's actually converted. That's a uh, kind of a funny uh, attitude that Pontius had in his biography and, and a real far cry from the other African giant of Augustine who goes to great lengths to talk about his pre-conversion experience. Um, so, so that's an, that, that's an interesting yeah, detail. That's, that's an good. interesting detail. Yeah, that's, that's very yeah. good. I had never thought about that. Yeah. But this, yeah. There's a complete contrast there. As far as Cyprian's installment as the Bishop of Carthage, it was a contested one. Um, was it common to see installments to those positions to be contested prior to Constantine? And why was it contested in this case? Yes, because the bishop is 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 acclaimed by congregational vote, so the the, the house churches would have voted to uh, have him as bishop. Um, we have yet to reach the kind of model of the medieval papacy, medieval episcopacy, where bishops elect bishops or the pope elects bishops. Uh, th this is still a world in which the congregation elects the bishop, and the dispute has to do with the fact that he is so. He's, he's so recent a convert, so within a couple of years of his of his um, of his catechumenate and baptism, um, that he is elevated to the episcopate. Um, as it would turn out, it's um, it's a very wise choice. Um, he was the man who was needed uh, for the hour that was coming upon the Carthaginian Church um, in what we call the Decian persecution, where the Roman Emperor Decius. Uh, unleashed an empire-wide persecution that was felt particularly 
um, savagely in uh, in North Africa in Carthage. What was the normal time frame uh, that bishops would be expected to have prior to being uh, installed as bishops? Were they expected to serve as deacons first? Is there kind of a collapsing of the church offices at this point? Well, yeah, no, I, I'm not sure I'd want to describe it as a collapsing of the church office, but I, you, you've got you've got that Pauline statement in the the First Timothy, that, you know, do not elect a novice as a bishop, First Timothy three, and a, a person who's been a Christian two years, three years, um, it was certainly falls into that category. But you are reckoning with a man who, and this is, I think this is part of the reason why the, the he was he ended up being voted in is a man who'd already been a leader. He's in, his, he's in his early 40s. He's not a young man. He's already tested as a leader. Um, he's quite a catch for the church. He's, he's an aristocrat, when probably most of the church is definitely not of his social class. Uh, the church is beginning to reach into or to penetrate into the upper class, but um, they would not have been plentiful it's not it's not the sort of scenario that you find in the fourth century where after the toleration of christianity a large numbers of the middle upper class are becoming christian uh whether for the right reasons or not um nonetheless that's fact a fact um and so he's quite a catch for the church and so it's not surprising that the church would want to um elevate him to a position of leadership um but the church is not normally going to be electing as bishop a person who'd only been a Christian two or three years. Um, but the other case that kind of um, is similar is Ambrose um, in the uh, fourth century, where the bishop of Milan had died, and Ambrose had not yet even been baptized when there was a, a the cry went up for him to be bishop. So he's he's um, much more normal would be maybe something like Augustine. Um, Augustine uh, baptized as a believer three eighty six, um, becomes uh, a minister with a bishop um, in three ninety one, and becomes bishop in three ninety five. So it's been it's been a decade for Augustine, and that's much more typical. Do you ever see? Uh particularly young men get installed as bishops or is that unusual as well? And again, yeah, that is unusual too. Um, so when Francis, uh, Athanasius is elected bishop in Alexandria, one of the disputes was his age. The canonical age was 30. Um, and he obviously was just on the cusp of that, which means that Athanasius, whose dates of birth are normally placed around 295, the, the, that debate took place in 328. Um, his, his, his birthday must be later than that. So it's got to be around 299. Um, he's probably just on the cusp of turning 30. So um, there was a canonical age for the bishop, and it was, it was 30. Well, excellent. Um, so as we, as we close out this episode and looking forward to uh, next week when we'll be looking at the uh, more his doctrine of the church. One of the things we always want to be careful with when looking at these theologians is not to saddle them 
and make their whole identity with just one aspect of their theology. And we want to make sure to be careful with Cyprian as well. Uh, what are some other broad contours of his theology and his ministry? Um, I'm thinking also of his letters to Donatus and Demetrian or Demetrianus as some sources call it. Um, could you speak to who he is as a theologian and as a thinker and as a pastor in, in these instances? Yes, he's he's certainly not as um, um, an original thinker in some ways, the way that Tertullian is. Tertullian, Tertullian's brilliant in, in a number of areas. Um, his ad versus praxius, praxian uh, against praxius is, is just a remarkable feat in which he demolishes, I think, demolishes uh, modalism and uh, gives the church the grammar of speaking about the the godhead uh the use of the terms persona substantia etc um that's not the sort of contribution that cyprian makes uh cyprian's great area of thinking is definitely in ecclesiology um he does do he's got one or two uh of his letters are responding to pagans um he has in his um a day mortalitata tata yeah um on on mortality um, which is written in the context of the plague of a plague that sweeps through uh, North Africa uh, during the 250s, during the time when he's um, ministering in Carthage. Um, possibly a quarter of the Roman population died from that. Um, plague is based, prob- originated probably in Ethiopia, um, rages for about 20 years in the Roman world. Uh, at least two Roman emperors die of it. And uh, Cyprian uh, writes, uh, it's sometimes known as Cyprian's plague because Cyprian identifies uh, elements of it um, and uh, helps the church think through uh, how to deal with uh, this um, calamity, this pestilence that had come into the Roman world. Um Cyprian is often described as a person who didn't have a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, for example. Uh, That is one area that I have done work on. And um, it may not be as robust as, say, Tertullian's, but there is, um, in texts like Tadonatus, significant thinking through of the work of the Holy Spirit in conversion and then in preserving the believer um and uh, producing the fruit of of a holy life so cyprian is very much a practical theologian i think uh, is the way i would describe him um dealing with various contemporary issues um he's not a speculative theologian uh, unlike his contemporary origin at the other end of of the of north africa um in egypt and how does how does uh cyprian uh talk about the Christian faith to, uh, to Donatus. That's what I know. That's one of the letters that, uh, you will engage with in your courses. Yes. That's where he, yeah, he, that's where he, um, uh, the, he begins by describing his, um, his conversion, um, in language. He gives us actually, I think a, a mini, um, he describes his life before, before conversion, then after immediately after conversion, it's kind of a mini, uh, conversion narrative. Um, so that the genre that we have in Augustine's uh, Confessions is not completely unheralded. 
Um, in many ways, he is creating a new type of literature there, that is Augustine, but it's not completely unheralded in the Latin Christian tradition. Um, Cyprian does give us kind of a mini description of, of how he comes to faith in Christ, what that entails. And then he, he, then he goes broader. He looks, at, he looks at why Christianity is so helpful in the chaos of the third century. And the third century is often described as the, the, the crisis of the third century, which is, I think, well captured by the fact that between the 220s and 284, with the, with the advent of Diocletian to the, an accession of Diocletian to the purple, um, you have this, uh, you have something like in the space of about 65 years, about 40 emperors. Um, it's, it's just chaotic. Most em- most of them uh, reign two or three years. They all, all but two die in there. All but two die violently, either on the battlefield or by assassination. Um, there's political chaos, military chaos. The the Roman frontier in, on the Rhine is breached a number of times by Germanic uh, cavalry. Um, one of the Roman emperors gets captured by the Sasanian by the by the Sasanians, the great uh, empire to the east in what is now Iran and uh, dies in prison there. And uh, the Sasanian emperor uh, has him actually stuffed, uh, like you would stuff an animal that you've killed on a hunt or something like that, and propped up in the corner of the palace, uh, the corner of rather of his um, uh, court. Um, so it's a very deeply chaotic period. And uh, Cyprian goes through various elements of the, the, the kind of collapsing of the Roman world uh, the bloodshed, uh, then also speaks morally uh, about the theater, the gladiatorial, um, uh, the the Roman amphitheater, and the, the gladiators there. And then at the end, he talks about how the Holy Spirit is um, beautifying our souls, and he uses he uses uh, contrasting imagery with, I think, almost definitely the world in which he knew, which is the spending of inordinate amounts of some sums of money on the beautification of one's home. Um, he talks about slabs of marble, etc., and um, the colors that we use to, to paint the walls, and the fact that these things are all going to fade and crumble. But the beautification of the soul by the Spirit um, is of eternal value. So it's a very, it's a, it's a fabulous letter in many, many ways, um, in which you find the Christian uh, taking a position over against culture and uh, staking out this kind of uh, radical new way of life um, for um, his readers. Beat is co-hosted by Caleb Anthony Neal and is produced in partnership with the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, an historical research center at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary that seeks to promote the study of Baptist history and theological reflections on its contemporary significance. For more by Dr. Haken, follow him on his substack at Historia Ecclesiastica. Links are in the description. We'll see you next time on Bede.